times in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Welcome back to Know Thyself, the podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong, trying to resurrect sense and meaning from the dust of a billion factoids. And I'm pretty sure I'm falling further and further behind every episode as I chase this rainbow. Today we begin a new topic, that's the topic of our origins, with my working hypothesis being that if we want to really understand who we are, we should try to understand where we came from. But I want to begin with a thought experiment. Suppose you lived in a pre-literate, obviously pre-scientific world, so that your only sources of information are your senses, so what you can see and touch and taste and feel, and the people around you. Your senses are obviously limited. They can only tell you what is nearby, what you can immediately experience. You think about it, the whole microscopic universe is inaccessible to you. So you don't know about viruses, bacteria, any of those things. And not only that, but the cosmos around you is pretty much inaccessible as well. So think about how limiting that would be. Everything in order of magnitude greater than you in size or smaller would be out of the equation. You can't really factor those into considerations of cause and effect. So when you're looking for the source of an illness, you can't say it's bacteria or viruses because they exist below the level of your comprehension. You have no idea they're there. Or let's say that a new star appears in the heavens. Well, there's really no way that you would understand that as a supernova of a star billions of miles away from you. It seems to be right up in that little dome over your head. And so think about how that narrows the world, and think about how that narrows the possible explanations for phenomena that you observe around you. Now, in addition to that, you're limited in how far you can travel and how many things you can see in your lifetime. You really can't go very far or see very much. Every single thing you know about the world beyond your immediate experience has to come from verbal reports from other people. You're at the mercy of what they say and whatever corroborating evidence or testimony you can get. And often these reports are not firsthand. You'll talk to someone whose brother's cousin visited a far country and reported of the strange inhabitants there, and you don't know if you should take their word for it or not. But the fact is, you're still a human, and you're just as intelligent, just as inquisitive as any human who's ever lived. You know that if you're going somewhere, you need the right information. If you're going to find game, you need to know where to find game. If you want to start a fire, you know that there are some ways to start a fire that are more effective than others. To build a shelter, it's the same thing. Some shelters will hold up and others will not. And you can learn from others' experiences and reports on these. So you have limited access to knowledge. And yet you know that knowledge is very powerful and greatly to be desired. And along with that, you're capable of seeing the human condition. In the first place, you know how limited you are. You know the things that you can and can't do. You also see others around you. Sometimes people get sick. People age. And many, many of the people you knew all your life have died. And not only that, but you talk to people who are older than you and everyone they ever knew has died. And as you see your own hair turning gray, your own teeth beginning to fall out, your skin wrinkling, your muscles weakening, you know that you too are mortal. I mean, mortality is one of the 
basic facts of your existence. And you might wonder why that is. Along with that, you see that some people seem to be fortunate and other people aren't. Some women's children are healthier than others and they live longer. Some people win battles, other people seem to lose them. And often, it doesn't seem fair. Some people's crops will flourish and thrive, other people's will fail. And you really don't know why. And if you take it back one level, you really don't know why you're here and where you came from. What your relationship is to the earth, to the animals, to the cosmos around you. And the irony of all of this is that as inscrutable as all these questions are, even to us, let alone to some primitive peoples, as inscrutable as those questions are, there never has been, it seems to me, in any society, a shortage of people who are absolutely certain that they know all the answers. Within a society, I would say that a majority of people feel that they have it all figured out. And the fact that they have it figured out in a completely different way than some other society in no way phases them or lessens their degree of certainty. In fact, I think it's a fundamental law of human nature. Our level of certainty is inversely proportionate to the degree in which we can confirm any claim. So the less chance we have of confirming or denying something, the more certain of it we are. I mean, on one hand, why not be certain? Nobody can prove you wrong. There were no written records at the dawn of time, so you can pretty much assert any random fact about it you want and be just as correct as anybody else. As we speak about these origin myths or creation myths. The entire episode reminds me of something I heard Jack Cornfield say, and I wish I could find the reference, but I can't. He was talking about a great sage who was asked by his disciples, what is the most amazing thing on earth? And the answer this great sage gave was, the most amazing thing on earth is that every single human will die, but nobody thinks they will. Well, to me, one of the most amazing things on earth is the fact that none of these historical or prehistorical societies really knew where we came from, and yet every single one of them thought they did. There are as many origin myths as there are cultures. They're what we call a cultural universal. We don't really know of any culture that doesn't have one. And when you think about it, there's a lot of heavy lifting that these stories do. And that's why I think they're so universal. Not only do they answer universal questions, they evoke a sense of wonder. They provide a grounding for morality. They explain the kingship or the rulership of that society. They orient the people within their family, within their tribe or their city, or the entire cosmos. They allow people to answer certain questions that could otherwise paralyze them with uncertainty. I mean, think about it. If you are a tribe or a society or a city-state, you need to be unified. You need to raise crops. You need to hunt, forage. You need to protect yourself from enemy invasion. How are you going to accomplish any of those things if you're just sitting around moping in existential angst, meeting down by the watering hole, smoking, writing bad poetry. None of those things are going to get accomplished. So, of course, there is a survival benefit, not only to individuals, but to entire societies, to have a founding myth, to have a creation story that unifies you, that gives you purpose. And so today we'll be going through a few of those. I obviously can't speak to a fraction of the ones that exist, but I'll try to find some unifying themes maybe at the end. So most cosmogonies, now cosmos is like the world or the universe, but especially the ordered world. Cosmos wasn't just the universe to the ancient mind, it was the ordered universe. So it was actually the antonym for chaos. So cosmogonies are the begetting of the universe or the origin of the ordered universe. Certain of these are called creation myths because they involve a creative agent, a god or a mythological being that creates the cosmos. So they aren't just origin myths, they're usually creation myths. Sometimes these gods create the world intentionally, 
Sometimes it seems almost accidental or as an afterthought. And some of these myths are a little bit bizarre, I have to say. I don't know why they didn't strain the credulity even of the people who lived at the time when they were the dominant narrative. And I want to begin with Panggu. Panggu is a prominent figure in Chinese mythology, but the origin of this story is a little controversial. The first written record we have of the Panggu myth is from the Chinese writer Xu Zhang. Hope I'm saying that right. Doubt I am. But he was an author from the 3rd century AD. But most people believe that he was drawing on much, much more ancient sources, and that seems to be a recurring theme in these stories also. By the time they're finally committed to writing, they've gone through generation after generation of oral transmission, and the person who actually writes it is just recording a record that is already extant. But this is how that Chinese myth saw the creation of the world. In the beginning, the universe was nothing but chaos. Heaven and earth were intermingled in the form of a big black egg. So everything was just mixed up. Pangu was born inside of this egg, this big black egg. And after his birth, he slept for 18,000 years inside the egg. And yin and yang were mixed. They were balanced inside the egg as he grew. But at last, after 18,000 years, he awoke. He realized that he was trapped. And he pushed. And as he pushed, he separated the egg shells into an upper and lower half. That essentially split yin and yang. The upper half of the eggshell became the sky, the lower half the earth. And they were initially very close together, but Pangu grew 10 feet per day for another 18,000 years. And as he grew, he pushed the earth farther and farther from the sky. Now obviously this takes a tremendous amount of energy. And not many of us could do it for more than 18,000 years. And neither could Pangu. So Pangu died after 18,000 years. And after he died, parts of his body formed the parts of the earth. The interesting thing is where the Chinese believe that humans came from. Humans were the parasites on Pangu's body. So not a very uh, glamorous or flattering portrayal of human origins. And basically not a very optimistic assessment of human nature, really, if you look at it. But I have to admit it's not altogether inaccurate either. But according to this myth, Pangu is the first supreme being. And the heavens and the earth are created from pre-existent chaos by an act of will, by him stretching out and shattering the egg in which he is trapped. And humans are not all that special. They are the parasites on Pangu's body. They were not created by an act of volition. Let's move to Babylon. From Babylon, we have the Enuma Elish, an epic poem from the late second millennium before Christ. So this is much older than the Pangu myth at least in a written form. And this story begins with a theogony, or the origin story of the gods, and then a cosmogony, or the creation of the earth from chaos. The interesting thing about the Enuma Elish is that it primarily exists to glorify one god in particular, Marduk. That's because he is the patron god of Babylon. So this is the tale of how Marduk became triumphant, transcendent over the other gods, and then required that they build him a city, which was Babylon and a temple the Esagila, within Babylon. Now this Enuma Elish is an epic poem, and the name comes from the first two words in the poem, which mean, when in the heights. I'll begin with the quote from the poem. Quote, When in the height heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, and the primeval Apsu who begat them, and Chaos, Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters were mingled together, and no field was formed no marsh was to be seen, 
when of the gods none had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained. Then were created the gods in the midst of the heavens. Lamu and Lahamu were called into being. Now by way of explanation, Apsu in this poem is fresh water. Tiamat is salt water, but she is personified as a dragon. And even though it's hard to interpret what I just read, it is from the union of the salt and fresh water, Tiamat and Apsu, that the gods arise, beginning with Lamu and Lahamu, and then others. So Apsu, being freshwater, is male. He can't stand all the commotion that these children of theirs are making. So as these gods are being born, they're driving the freshwater crazy. And Apsu wants to kill them. He plans filicide against his own children. So Tiamat saves them with the help of the god Ea. So the mother of these gods saves them from fresh water. Now this Ea, who teams up with Tiamat to subdue Apsu, is a mighty god. And he is able to subdue fresh water, subdue Apsu, and put him into basically a coma. And peace is restored, the gods are saved. And after this great triumph, Ea goes home to his wife, and they have a son. And the name of that son is Marduk. Now Marduk is even mightier than Ea. And Marduk is given a gift, a toy to play with. And the toy that he's given to play with is the wind. So now Mar Marduk is playing with this toy, basically blowing wind around the earth. And we all know the effect that wind has on the salt water. So Marduk churns up the sea. He enrages Tiamat. And in the meantime, Tiamat has a new husband since Apsu is asleep. And Tiamat's husband is the god Kingu. And not only are Tiamat and Kingu enraged by the wind that Marduk is blowing around on the salt water, they're now also offended at the fact that Apsu has been put into a coma by Marduk's father, Ea. So even though that's what Tiamat wanted at the time, she's now offended by it. It's kind of Orwellian, I guess. This is kind of hard to follow. It's a little convoluted. You'd probably have to hear this several times to really follow it. But Tiamat and her new husband, Kingu, go to war against Marduk and his army of gods. And to help them fight the army of gods, Tiamat brings forth 11 monsters. It's a very interesting part of the poem. It says, quote, She hath made, in addition, weapons invincible. She hath spawned monster serpents, sharp of tooth and merciless of fang, with poison instead of blood, she hath filled their bodies. Fierce monster vipers has she clothed with terror. With splendor has she decked them. She hath made them of lofty stature. Whoever beholdeth them, terror overcometh him. Their bodies rear up, and none can withstand their attack. She hath set up vipers and dragons, and the monster Lahamu, and hurricanes and raging hounds, and scorpion men, and mighty tempests, and fishmen, and rams." They bear merciless weapons without fear of the fight. Her commands are mighty. None can resist them. After this fashion, huge of stature, hath she made eleven monsters. So Marduk faces the dragon, which again was one of the forms of Tiamat. He faces her in single combat. He catches her in a net and then stabs her with an arrow and kills her. Marduk then cuts up Tiamat's body and uses it to construct the dome of the sky and various natural features also. He takes her head, cuts off her head, buries it under a mountain, stabs her eyes, and the liquid that comes out of her stabbed eyes becomes the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So in this way, Marduk demonstrates his absolute mastery over the natural world. He decides to pardon all the gods who fought against him, who fought on the side of the dragon Tiamat, except for Kingu. But he demands that these gods do penance by building him a city and a temple. And the city, as I said, was Babylon, the temple, the Esagila. Marduk also convenes a council and tries Kingu for his crimes, and Kingu is executed. 
And this is fascinating because this is where people come from. You see, the gods are tired of having to work. And what they really need is a species of slaves to do all their work for them, to serve them. And that's humans. So Marduk commands that humans be created from Kingu's corpse. So if you ask a Babylonian where humans come from, humans are the slaves created from the corpse of a loser, rebellious god. And so I guess you could see this as a little bit demeaning, but to the Babylonians, they were so enamored, so in awe of Marduk that to be created to be servants of Marduk was actually a great honor to them. It was not something to be ashamed of. Now, as I said, the Enuma Elish was an epic poem, and Marshall McLuhan once said that the medium is the message. So I want you to understand the way in which people received this epic poem, this story of their creation. It was only read once a year during the Babylonian New Year festival. And you can bet that the reading of this sacred text was accompanied with all the pomp and ceremony that a wealthy city could muster. There must have been swinging censers and smoke ascending and priests in costume. Most of the population would have been illiterate anyway, so just to hear these words read, undoubtedly by the finest orator among the priests, must have been a very moving religious experience. But not only was it a religious experience, what a great poem. It's a tale of love and death. There's vengeance, there's betrayal, there's violence, there's monsters. It explains the relationship of the wind to the sea, the origins of humanity, the origins of the gods themselves, and the responsibilities, the relationship that humans had to the gods. So, what an incredibly moving, powerful, I guess we would have called it an early multimedia extravaganza. But what better way to bind a people together, to give them a sense of shared identity and common purpose? And that's some of that heavy lifting I was referring to earlier that these origin stories do for a society. Another origin story that performs a similar function, this time for an entire nation, is the national epic of Finland called the Kalevala. This was originally published in 1835, written by the poet Elias Lonrot, but again drawing from much more ancient traditions, oral traditions dating back generation after generation. We don't know how far back. But according to the Kalevala, at one time there were only primal waters and sky. And like so many of these epics, even though there were only two things, one of them had a daughter or something else, so there were really three things, but why quibble? So Sky had a daughter named Ilmatar, and one day Ilmatar was looking for a place to rest, so she descended to the water. There she swam and floated for 700 years. Then she noticed a beautiful bird was also searching for a resting place, so Ilmatar raised her knee toward the bird so that it could land. The bird landed on Ilmatar's knee and laid six eggs made of gold, and one egg made of iron. Now, as the bird incubated the eggs, Ilmatar's knee got hotter and hotter. Eventually, it started burning, so Ilmatar had to move her knee. And when she did this, the eggs fell into the water and were shattered. Land was formed by the lower part of one of the eggshells, and sky was formed by the upper part of one of the eggshells. So again, like Pangu, this is an egg myth. What better way to tell the story of origins and beginnings than with an egg? which everyone understands is the origin and beginning of certain forms of life. And as people are pretty visual, the white of the egg became the moon and the stars. And you can guess already what the yolk of the egg became, which was the sun. So the story goes that Ilmatar was just floating peacefully, admiring all the beautiful scenery, the stars, the sun, the earth, the sky. But eventually she had caught the creating bug, I guess, so she wanted to keep creating. And to do this, she would point certain places, she would step other places. Her footprints became great pools of fish. 
Just by pointing, she could create contours in the land. And in that way, she made everything that was. And one day, she became the mother to a man whose name I now intend to butcher. I believe it was Vainamoinen. Vainamoinen was the first man. His mother was the daughter of the sky, and his father was the sea. He was apparently a born swimmer also, because when he was born, he had to swim and swim and swim until he found land. And when he did find land, the land was barren. There's no way it could sustain his life. So he asked the great bear in the sky, which would have been Ursa Major, obviously, for help. And Ursa Major sent a boy carrying seeds down to Vinamoinen. And that boy spread plant life across the land. Of course, simply to have me tell you what happens in the poem doesn't do it anything like justice. This is a beautiful piece of epic poetry. If you look it up online, listen to it spoken in the original Finnish, you get an idea for the rhythm and the cadence. But I cannot possibly do it justice. I can't pronounce Finnish. I can't even pronounce the name of the lead character. There is a reason that Finnish is one of the most difficult languages for English speakers to learn. There's really no Germanic or Latin in it, so it's very, very foreign to us, so I'll just leave it at that. But what I do want to point out is how gentle that myth is. The daughter of the sky, floating gently in the water, shakes her knee, eggs fall. I mean, this could be the stuff from a Mr. Rogers episode, really. And you contrast that with Marduk, who is a god of war, who rose to power by subduing his enemies, executing his foes, etc. Contrast that also with the Norse creation myth, where Odin is a god of violence, god of war also. And human beings are the armpit sweat from a giant named Ymir. I'm not kidding about that. Human beings are born because a frost giant is in a fever dream. He's sweating, and we drip out of his armpits, essentially. So once again, not a very auspicious start. Kind of reminds you of Pongu and the body lice that becomes humans. But I want to go to the Greek tale of our creation. Because I think Greek mythology is more formative on Roman and then subsequently all of Western thought than any of the other mythologies I've presented so far. What knowledge we have of Greek mythology from Greek antiquity is preserved in one volume called The Library of Pseudo-Apollodorus. Now, Apollodorus of Athens lived from about 180 to 125 BC, and he also collected mythological tales. So why do we call this from the Library of Pseudo-Apollodorus? Well, because someone was writing as Apollodorus but writing about events that occurred long after Apollodorus's death. So we call it the Library of Pseudo-Apollodorus, and it is a source of mythographical information from ancient Greece. So remember that if you're in Final Jeopardy, and the answer is the only source of mythographical information to survive from ancient Greece, your question will be, what is the Library of Pseudo-Apollodorus? So there you have it. I want a split of your winnings. Now, we talked in episode one about Zeus subduing the Titans and becoming the ruler of the whole earth. So the earth was formed, but it lacked only two things, men and animals. Zeus summoned two of his sons. One was named Prometheus, the other Epimetheus. Now, these are symbolic names because Prometheus means forethought. Epimetheus means afterthought. And Zeus told them to go to earth, create men and animals, and give them each a gift. So Prometheus sets to work forming man in the image of the gods. That's very important. Man was formed in the image of the gods, according to Greek mythology. Epimetheus worked on animals. And as Epimetheus worked, he gave each animal one of the gifts. So the animals are formed. They each have their gifts. And then Prometheus finishes making humankind. And he realizes to his great distress that man does not have any gifts. All the gifts have been given to the animals. 
He has to give them something. So the next morning when the sun god rides out on his chariot, Prometheus steals fire and gives that fire to mankind as their gift. Now, unfortunately, this was a major transgression. Zeus had expressly forbidden fire to be given to man. Fire was solely the province of the gods. And so he devised a very cruel punishment for his son. Probably one of the cruelest punishments in history. Prometheus was chained to a rock for all eternity. And every single day, an immortal eagle would come out, land by the rock, and eat Prometheus's liver. Because Prometheus was a god, every single night his liver would regenerate. And so he got to go through the entire ordeal every single day. In fact, according to the Greek myth, Prometheus is still chained somewhere to a rock. And if it's daylight where he is, an eagle is currently eating his liver. So a horrific punishment. But Zeus also wants to punish mankind. So he has another of his sons create a woman. And this is a woman of incredible beauty. Her name is Pandora. And all of the gods give Pandora a gift. Zeus gives her two gifts. And this is where the story becomes very symbolic of the entire human condition in my mind, because one of Zeus's gifts is curiosity. And the other gift is a box that she must never open. So this is obviously symbolic of the fact that humans are just a bundle of desires that they can never satisfy. Reminds me a little bit of the hungry ghosts in the Buddhist traditions. So, he then gives Pandora as a wife to Epimetheus. And they live happily for a time. But, of course, Pandora is curious and she can't get it out of her mind. She wants so badly to see what's inside that box. She's pretty sure it's going to be awesome because all the other gods had given her these great gifts. Well, as you could predict, she can't resist forever. One time when Epimetheus is away, she has to look. She opens the lid of the box and once she does, all the horrors that plague the earth today, pain, sickness, envy, greed, all of it, fly out of the box and escape into the world. Epimetheus can hear Pandora screaming, and he rushes home, closes the lid as quickly as he can, but all the evils had already escaped. Later that night, Epimetheus and Pandora are resting, and they hear a noise coming from inside the box. And as they draw themselves a little closer, they hear a voice saying, Let me out. I am hope. So, of course, they open the lid and release hope into the world. Whether or not hope is a blessing or a curse could be debated, but in this story, it's a blessing to mankind. Because with all the plagues and all the suffering and all the horrors that Pandora's box unleashed upon mankind, it also released hope into the world. In the case of most of these historical founding myths, they took them at face value. But I would submit that even then, no matter how primitive we would have considered the society, they did not just take them at face value. They would have seen several connotations along with the denotation. Even if these myths were organized into a scripture and held to be binding as the charter of some state religion. So this is another level at which these myths function. We've already talked about the fact that they do quite a bit of heavy lifting. People have questions, they want answers. Since they do not understand meteorology at the times these myths were created, they see a great storm at the sea, heavy waves, and they can explain it with Tiamat being stirred up by the winds from Marduk or a bolt of lightning comes down and destroys their house. They want an explanation for that. They have a ready-made explanation in the story of Zeus, obviously offended by something done in that house and destroyed it. So even a surface-level reading of these myths provides information, insight, 
and some benefit to the society where they are believed. It's very common for people to read these ancient stories and feel a little smug satisfaction in the fact that we have now transcended the entire mythological worldview. We no longer need these anthropomorphic forces to explain what happens in the world around us. We are myth-free. But that is where a structuralist would come in and say, the idea that you are myth-free is a myth by which you are living. In other words, no society, no culture, not ours, any more than any other, is free of its own forms of mythology. This is the point that Roland Barthes made. He said, look, you can read all these ancient myths at the superficial level and you'll miss some of their deeper import. And in just the same way, you can live your life accepting the myths of your society at just that same superficial level. So, for example, the myth of rationality, the myth of causality, the myth of the way that we currently see the world and the cosmos, without really understanding at a deeper level what these things connote, what they say about us, what they could help us understand about who we are. Because to Bart and other structuralists, Mythology is just something we create. We do it all the time. It's a very characteristically human endeavor. And I think as evidence of his claim, he could point to the fact that origin myths are a cultural universal, as I said before. I want to talk a little bit more about some origin myths. The next one is the pyramid texts. These are tomb wall decorations and writings dating all the way back to between 2800 and 2300 years before the Common Era. These are very ancient writings, almost 5,000 years old. And this is what gives us most of our information about the early Egyptian creation myths. The ancient Egyptians had many different creator gods, many different associated legends, and many different cities had their own patron god, just like Babylon had Marduk. Well, Heliopolis had a patron god named Adam, A-T-U-M. He was also called Ra, and his full name and title would have been Adam Ra, the self-created one, the finisher of worlds. And this was a monotheistic story. Adam was one. Nothing else existed but him. So how did more things, how did the multiplicity of things that we see now come into being? I will quote from the Heliopolis Pyramid text, quote, I was then one by myself, for I had not emitted from myself the god Shu, and I had not spit out from myself the goddess Tefnut, and there existed no other who could work with me. I laid the foundations of things in my own heart, and there came into being multitudes of created things, which came into being from the created things which were born from the created things which arose from what they brought forth. Almost sounds like he's positing an infinite regress, or at least a regress all the way back to him for everything that exists. Quote, I had union with my closed hand, and I embraced my shadow as a wife, and I poured seed into my own mouth. And I spit forth from myself issue in the form of the god Shu and Tefnut. And it goes on from there. Very strange story. And as you can tell, not all of these stories are very transcendent. Some of them are earthy to a fault. When we discuss the Hebrew creation story, we term it a creation story, not a myth, out of respect for the fact that its validity is still accepted by millions, maybe billions of people around the world. And as such, it still informs the thought, the self-awareness, the theology, the worldview, ethos, the reason for the human condition. And in Christianity, it's the opening of this great circle of theology, a circle of cosmic events, an explanation for why Jesus of Nazareth was killed by the Romans, events that will culminate one day in the return of this same Jesus and the cleansing of the wicked from off the earth and the restoration of a paradise state of happiness and peace. 
Many people believe that this story denotes the way in which human beings came into the world and how they ended up in their current condition. Now, I said story, but I should have said stories because there's one in Genesis 1 where the creative deity is called by the title, the plural title, Elohim. There is another story in Genesis 2 where God is referred to as Yahweh. And those accounts are fairly well known, but what's less well known is that there is another cosmogony in the Old Testament, one that closely aligns with Mesopotamian and Babylonian stories. And that what might be the oldest creation story in the entire Bible is not in the book of Genesis at all. It's alluded to in the book of Isaiah, and then more explicitly in the book of Job and Psalms. And I think the clearest and fullest biblical account of this ancient myth appears in Psalms 74, quote, For God, thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driest up mighty rivers. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Many people reading the Bible take this as figurative speech, as poetry, which it is. Even those who see the accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 as denoting the actual physical events that took place during creation, see these words in Psalm 74 as figurative and symbolic, poetic language. An archaeological discovery made in the 20th century shed light on this strange account, though, and revealed it for what it is. It's an abridged version of the Canaanite creation myth. So remember when the first Hebrew, Abram, is traveling from Ur of the Chaldees, he is given the land of Canaan, and the people who inhabit that land were Canaanites. So the Israelites were formed as a nation in the land of the Canaanites. And this story from Psalm 74 seems to echo Canaanite creation stories. Because in the 20th century, as I said, among the ruins of the ancient Canaanite city of Ugarit, tablets were found in a language, again, very similar to Hebrew, recording many myths believed by the city's inhabitants, including one of creation that began with the storm god Baal, vanquishing the god of the sea, whose name was Yam, and his sea monster serpent dragon helpers, just in the way that it's described in Psalm 74. And so you could argue about which direction that cultural transmission went, who influenced whom, but it's still fascinating to see ancient Canaanite creation myths recorded in the book of Psalms in the Hebrew Bible, and in Job, and in Isaiah. Now there's another completely different account of creation found in the Bible in Genesis 2, as I said. It starts with this line, quote, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It then goes on to describe how God made man from clay, placed him in a garden, and only then made plants and animals and then espoused for the benefit of this male. And this stands in stark contrast with the six creative periods and the one period of rest portrayed in Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, God creates plants and animals before he ever creates people, male and female. But going back to Genesis chapter 2, after this man and his spouse and the animals and plants are created, they are living in a garden in a state of great bliss. But unfortunately, there is a fly in the ointment. There's a tree. And on this tree, there's a fruit that will make people like gods. And how do they define this godliness? By one simple fact. If they know good from evil, they will be like the gods. So this tree, which had a fruit, which would open the eyes of Adam and Eve, 
to the knowledge of good and evil, was forbidden to them, much in the same way that fire was forbidden to humans in the Greek origin tale. Now, there's a snake in the garden, and just like in many origin stories, this is, as far as we can tell, a snake. People have interpreted that in various ways over time. But all the text says is that the serpent was cunning, and he tricked Eve into eating the fruit, and then Adam ate the fruit, and all of the woes with which humanity is now afflicted entered the world. One of the first afflictions was shame, because they realized that they were naked, so shame enters the world, and of course modesty is not far behind. But along with that, they are cursed. The woman is going to have pain with childbirth. The man is going to have to work hard to get anything out of the soil. It's no longer going to give him fruit spontaneously. Sickness, disease, all manners of shortcomings. But ultimately, they came from the dust, and they are going to die and one day return to the dust. So this is a very elaborate and beautiful and richly symbolic story. And it seems to have a very different source than the Canaanite version. Some elements of the story seem familiar. So ancient Mesopotamian myths like the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, man is cheated of immortality by a snake who eats a plant. Whereas if Gilgamesh had eaten the plant first, he would have been immortal. So along with this story of snakes, plants, and immortality in the epic of Gilgamesh, there's another story from Babylon, from the Enuma Elish. This is fascinating also because the god of wisdom, so here's wisdom, Ea, tricks the hero, Adapa, into not eating food that would make him immortal. So the other gods are offering the hero, Adapa, food which would make him immortal, but the wisdom god prevents his immortality. So I am not sure if the ancients saw some kind of conflict between wisdom, knowledge of good and evil, and simply living forever. And really, that has some scary connotations as well. Because it sounds like if you want to live forever, you better not be very wise. Don't spend your time studying and developing. Better off watching the Kardashians all day. But really, there might be a sense in which this is accurate. Because I think humans are the only animals who have an awareness of the fact that they are going to die someday. Humans are the only animals that know shame, that know their own shortcomings, that see their own nakedness. So there you go, we're taking that story to the level of connotation and learning from it. Since there were polytheists among the Hebrews, that's been pretty well established. You find many, many Venus idols, groves, Moloch idols, different things like this, in the regions inhabited by the ancient Hebrews. They might have had a similar pantheon at one time to the Sumerians. And since there are elements of the Babylonian epics in these creation stories, most scholars date the Hebrew accounts to the time after the return from Babylon. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the Jews were captured by the Babylonians, taken captive into Babylon. When the Persians overthrew the Babylonian Empire, Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return from Babylon to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. That began what's known as the Second Temple Period. And so most scholars date it from after the time of the return from Babylonian captivity under the Persians. That would have been about 583 BCE. So it's a younger creation account than some of those more ancient Babylonian and Sumerian epics. So we've gone through some of the cosmogonies from around the world. We have covered some myths and some stories about how we came to be here, how the world and the cosmos came to be ordered or created, where the gods came from, what our duty is to the gods, etc. But I simply want to point out one very obvious fact. Really, none of these cosmogonies that we have discussed try to start from some kind of ultimate beginning. And maybe that's why these stories that survive are monotheistic stories. 
because at least you don't have to go farther and farther back to find the origin of the self-existing one. So in the story of Adam Ra from Heliopolis, in the story in Genesis, these are self-existent beings. They are one. They exist outside time. And so once you can get outside time, once you can get past this infinite regression of cause and effect, at least you have an explanation that works. I'm not claiming it's right or wrong, but at least there's an endpoint. And this brings up what to me is the biggest question of all, a question whose answer I can't even see what form it would take. And that is the question, why is there anything instead of nothing? So tune in next time and I'll answer that for you. Actually, I'm just kidding. I don't even know, I don't know if we could recognize an answer to that question if it was staring us right in the face. But we will attempt to go through another important creation myth. And that will be the current creation myth of science. Now, notice I'm using myth in the broad sense, not as a judgment of whether it is true or false, but simply in the sense of a story that influences our perception of who we are, where we came from, our place in the universe. And I will have to start somewhere. I won't go all the way back promise you that. I'm not going to try to answer the question of where our universe came from, whether it sprouted from an umbilical cord from an existing universe through a wormhole, as one current model holds, or whether it was the collision of two existing universes that gave rise to this one, as another theory holds. I'm not going to look down that rabbit hole for too long. Because as Nietzsche said, and this quote is so beautiful, that if Nietzsche had never written or said anything else in his whole life, it would have been worth it. I'd still consider him a genius. He said, if you look for a long time into an abyss, the abyss also looks into you. And make no mistake, the ultimate origin of everything to me is an abyss. I'm not really sure we're any closer to answering these questions than the velociraptors were. So before the abyss looks back into me, I'm going to move on. Thank you for listening. This has been Know Thyself. I appreciate you listening in. And I would also appreciate if you feel so inclined, if you could do it with a clear conscience, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. I really want to be able to spread the message of the podcast. I want to be able to access top-tier guests. And if we can increase our exposure and our listenership, I think we can do this. Thank you.